It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Let's just say it was a rough night for Tom Brady. I mean, he played like he was 45 years old, which he is. You know, we're so accustomed to the Brady magic and the Brady comebacks and so forth. And here you have Tampa Bay uh, in a do-or-die playoff game. And they just got clobbered. The Dallas Cowboys played a great game, winning 31-14. to Just the first half, Brady couldn't put a point on the board. It ended up being 12-0 because the Dallas kicker missed two extra points and ended up missing four extra points for the game, setting a record. I mean, I, I've never seen anything like that. Obviously, it must have been psychological at some point. Now, if this had been a close game and the Cowboys had lost by two points and he missed four extra points, I mean, he would be uh, vilified. But it didn't matter because it was a blowout. Uh, It looked like Brady was going to be competitive when they were down by 6 nothing. You know, he's he's within the five-yard line, I guess, and throws an interception in the end zone. I mean, you never do that. It wasn't clear if he's trying to throw the ball away. Uh, in fairness to Brady, there's not much of a running game there, whereas Dallas had a pretty good running game. And so he's just throwing the ball, throwing the ball, and throwing the ball. And, and you know, even though he did complete a couple of touchdowns and, and made some good plays, it's, you know, football is not all about passing. It's also about defense. It's also about, um, of course, having a running game. So now everyone's writing, is this it? He was gracious at the press conference afterwards. He was so You could see how frustrated he was during the game. Just, you know, the things that usually work for him were not working for him. And he thanked the media and he thanked the Tampa Bay organization. Um, look, remember, Tom Brady, uh, soon after the end of the last season, retired. And then he unretired. And after he unretired, he wound up getting a divorce from his wife, Giselle Bunchen, and he played this one more season. Now, it's easy to say, well, you know, he shouldn't have played one more season. Look how it ended. But, you know, I mean, he made the playoffs. He went out there with his head held high. Remember that once he's done, he's supposed to be a Fox Sports commentator. So I think Brady may be learning from the last experience. Is going to give it some time and figure out what to do. I, If I had to guess, I bet this is it. I mean, who wants to see a 46- or 47-year-old quarterback running around out there? And then, you know, to some extent, you kind of dilute your legacy. You know, I mean, look, when the books are written, it will all be about all the championships that Brady won and uh, his glorious career with the New England Patriots and so forth. And even if you hate the guy, uh, he was, you know, because he was he's such an all-American type. Um, he was fun to watch because you never knew, you know, what he was going to pull out of his bag of tricks. I, you know, uh, also speculation about a possible retirement by Pope Francis, who obviously recently presided over the funeral of Pope Benedict, who had stepped down from that position. First time that's happened at the Vatican in 600 years. Um, what, about seven, eight years earlier? So uh, on Sunday, Francis says it's easy to become attached to the roles and positions, the need to be esteemed, recognized, and rewarded, to step aside. To learn to take one's leave. I have completed this mission. I have had this meeting. I will step aside and leave room for the Lord. To learn to step aside, not to take something for ourselves in recompense. Now, Francis has said things like that before. Uh, He obviously is not in the best of health. 
I think when he is ready, he will step down. Uh, and maybe Benedict started a new tradition where you don't, depending on the individual circumstances, obviously, uh, you know, popes don't serve forever. And if they are not really able to function very well, it would be more routine for them to step down. Uh, I don't think it's imminent. It could be six months from now. It could be two years from now, depending on his health. In any event, wanted to bring you up to date on that. You know, it's funny what gets picked up from my show or from Fox in general. So on Sunday's Media Buzz, um, which we got almost the whole show in before taking the MLK speech from President Biden, and I just had, we were talking about the Harry book, and I just wanted to make the point that it was the best-selling book in nonfiction history, even as everybody in Britain is trashing it. I actually am going to come back to that for a pretty revealing item. In any event, Mara Eliasson was one of my guests paired with Jim Garrity of National Review. And I played a soundbite of Donald Trump talking about uh, Jack Smith, his special counsel, not Robert Herr, who is, of course, Biden's special counsel on the documents business, and just trashing him and saying the election was rigged and so forth, and, and saying he's mentally deranged. And Mara Lyson said this, and she's an analyst, she works for NPR, and this is her opinion. There is no doubt that the majority of conservative media, Fox first and foremost, has a strong desire to move on from Donald Trump. And I'm reading this because I saw an item on it in the Huffington Post, the liberal Huffington Post. And they're not paying enough attention and giving him enough airtime and ink as they used to. And she recalled the day that he did the announcement, you know, the New York Post had that famous, I held this up on the air, a cover saying, uh, Florida man announces re-election, page 26. And there's a few paragraphs on page 26. But... Then the article goes on to say, well, here's what the Wall Street Journal editorial page says about Trump, as if, you know, some kind of marching order went out and the entire Rupert Murdoch empire has now decided Trump is not the guy. Well, yeah, he gets a lot less attention now, but he gets a lot less attention um, from lots of news organizations. And that is going to change as we get deeper into this campaign. So I counted it by saying it wasn't that I was disagreeing with Mara's conclusion, what I said was, well, ultimately that will be up to the voters because, you know, the pundits, how many times have the pundits written off Donald Trump going back to 2015, going back to 2016? And, you know, I'm not saying he's going to win the nomination, but he certainly might. I'm not saying he's going to win the general election. That is a tough, tougher scenario to imagine. But if he gets out there and some of these untested candidates, I'll get to Ron DeSantis in a few minutes, uh, fade and he's got that MAGA base, uh, I think he might get a lot of media coverage, not just on Fox, but on MSNBC, on CNN, on CBS, on ABC, on the New York Times, and the Washington Post. Right now, Biden's getting a lot of coverage. Oh, and that reminds me. I talked yesterday about how some people online are just like so certain that they can read somebody's mind that you can't really argue with them. You can't make a coherent case when somebody says, well, this is obviously true. One of the other examples I meant to mention was that the media... No, some bozo wrote, no, no longer want Biden to be the nominee in 24 and therefore have dug up this documents story, the first chunk of which was broken by CBS and the second or third chunk of which was broken by NBC. Um, but that's a pretty Machiavellian view. I mean, it's a story. It's a story that, of, uh, that was discovered by Biden's own people. It leaked. 
I mean, the idea, I mean, just think about how many chess moves that would involve, okay? We now think Biden is a weak nominee, so we want to get somebody else in there. So we'll just start covering the hell out of this latest story now that there's a special prosecutor. Well, you should cover the hell out of it because you covered the hell out of Trump's special prosecutor as well. There should be the same standard, not comparing the two cases because there's a lot of differences, as I have talked about here, as I've talked about on the air. Uh, but it just it just goes to show you. Now, Joe Rogan said something like, I think the media want to dump the guy. But, you know, I mean, that's what Rogan does. He, he's engaging in sheer speculation. And it's fun. And there's no, no problem there. Uh, you know what? This thing, San Francisco's Reparations Committee, of which the existence of which I was unaware, has proposed paying uh, each longtime black resident $5 million and forgiving uh, debt due to decades of systematic repression faced by the local black community. Now, this committee uh, released a report about this. It's not about slavery because California, you know, wasn't even part of the Civil War, wasn't a slave state. Um, But to address public policies explicitly created to subjugate black people in San Francisco. Uh, It goes on to say that while while California didn't adopt Formal slavery, the tenets of segregation, white supremacy, and systematic repression and exclusion of black people were codified through legal and extra-legal action, social codes, and judicial enforcement. Now, this is a complicated debate, and I don't want to make light of it. But $5 million for each person who's been living there a long time, um, you have to meet certain criteria, you have to be at least 18, you have to live there for at least 10 years, uh, so forth and so on. But... Where's that money coming from? That money is coming from taxpayers. Money is coming from taxpayers, some of whom are white, some of whom are black or Hispanic and struggling to make ends meet. It's so unrealistic. It's such an outlandish number. I'm just going to give a bunch of people $5 million each that it's hard to take seriously. It just really is. Not in any way talking about past segregation and discrimination. Because I've lived through some of this, the Civil Rights Movement, the Voting Rights Act, and now, of course, there's a, there are updated versions of debates on that, about, especially this past weekend, you know, Martin Luther King, I had a dream, he, he wanted a sort of a colorblind society, and people use his name to say either he would be appalled at what's going on today, because it's favorable treatment for minorities, but actually the, the, the pendulum is going the other way with this conservative Supreme Court. Uh, I think affirmative action in college admissions is going to be greatly reduced in future rulings, if not uh, completely abolished. And I used to cover some of this stuff. Anyway, uh, if I were some of these folks, I wouldn't spend the $5 million right away. I I would wait and see what happened. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Okay, story number one. White House officials saying yesterday there are no visitor logs keeping track of who comes and who goes from Joe Biden's personal residence in Wilmington. 
as you know, he spends a lot of time in Delaware. We have a president who lives close to the nation's capital. Not from Hawaii, he's not from California, he's not from Texas. Top House Republican, this must have been a TV interview. Oh no, it's James Comer, who you're going to hear a lot more about. This is the Republican guy who's the chairman now of the Oversight Committee. And he will be a household name in two weeks, two months, you name it. Uh, he wrote a letter saying it's troubling Classified documents have been improperly stored at the home of President Biden for at least six years. Remember, these are VP documents. Raising questions about who may have reviewed or had access to classified implications. To classified information, excuse me. Talking about the national security implications here. But, spokesman of the White House Counsel's Office says there are no logs of who visited Biden because Biden's home is not an official government property. Uh, here's the spokesman saying, like every president across decades of modern history, his personal residence is personal. But upon taking office, President Biden restored the norm and tradition of keeping White House visitors' logs, including publishing them regularly after the previous administration ended them. So Donald Trump, I guess, got rid of the practice of of publicly disclosing everybody who came, you know, you got to get Secret Service clearance or have a hard pass to even get into the White House, came to see him, whether it was, you know, in the Oval Office or a nighttime visit in the residence or whatever. Um, Biden has restored that, but, you know, I don't think, I mean, there was, there was no visitor logs of uh, who was visiting George W. Bush's Crawford Ranch or... Barack Obama's home in Chicago. It's just, you know, those are not government properties. I wish there were logs because probably it would be pretty unexciting to see that these were mostly people who were part of Joe Biden's inner circle and, of course, friends and family. This is his house. It's where he lives. He's from Delaware. Secret Service uh, says the agency doesn't track people who visit a president's personal home either. So that's all we're going to get on that. I do think that This is something of a game changer. Now, do I think, do I believe that when this special counsel's investigation is done, unless there's a lot of stuff that we don't know, uh, that we're going to find out that there was some nefarious plot by the former vice president to keep these documents that he says he didn't even know about or he's surprised to hear about at various locations like the Penn Biden Center in Washington? And it was all an effort to sort of peddle influence or something. No, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But by the same token, I now think the chances of any indictment against Donald Trump for anything having to do with classified documents is between slim and non-existent. Because you can make all the distinctions you want. Oh, well, you know, Trump, I mean, he, uh, he didn't cooperate and he obstructed justice. And of course, there should be an indictment there. But on the other hand, you know, there is the court of public opinion. And Merrick Garland, I think, having appointed two special counsels now, the one investigating Biden obviously was a Trump appointee, um, is not going to want to take a step that is perceived as essentially political. I mean, he, he could bring this charge. Maybe there are other charges related to January 6th, but they don't seem to have the same amount of evidence. 
you know, did Trump incite the riot? Well, what does incite mean? What was his intent? Didn't he say go peacefully? You know, all that. So somebody, one pundit said, man, Donald Trump's the luckiest guy in the world, the luckiest guy in politics, and it's true. Joe Biden gave him a very big gift. Which brings me to number two, a column on this very subject by Washington Post's David Vondrelli, old, old colleague of mine, who isn't primarily writing about politics, lives out in the heartland, but when he weighs in, it's really something. And this, I think, deserved more attention. So he starts out by saying any realistic prospect of criminal charges against Trump over the Mar-a-Lago documents uh, has now ended because of what happened with Biden. Well, now he doesn't know that for a fact, and neither do I. Obviously, it has to play out, but that's, that's his view. It's extremely unlikely. For the millions of Americans with a deep-down feeling that Trump is guilty of many things and that the heavens cry out for some justice somewhere, sometime, who have cheered the pursuit of from Russiagate through the porn star hush money, the rape allegation, the Ukrainian phone call, the second impeachment, the trial of Alan Weisselberg, the corporate and personal tax returns, that was going to sink him, right? And the attempts to steal an election for all those legions who thought finally Trump was caught dead to rights, this may be a tough pill to swallow. It is true. I mean, you just have people who have been thinking, arguing, hoping, pleading for six years that somehow somebody with all of these investigations was going to nail Donald Trump as a crook. But now that case will probably not be brought no matter how many side-by-side charts are created to distinguish between the known allegations against Trump and the so far unknown culpability of Biden. And then Vondrelli throws this in. Latest Gallup poll, 45% of Americans identify as Republican or leaning. 44% Democrats or leaning. Uh, That's called a divided country, folks. Now, he throws in, so you know where he's coming from. He says, look, I believe Trump is a bad person of low character, selfish, dishonest, intellectually lazy, Childish, shameless presidency was terrible for the country. For this reason, says David Vondrelli, I am relieved by the likely collapse of the classified documents case against him because it was the strongest case against Trump in terms of trial strategy. It was the most likely to produce an indictment. And indicting Trump is a terrible idea for those who genuinely hope to be rid of him. And that brings us to the most interesting part of this column. And it really sort of rings true to me. Um, so the argument here is, essentially, what's the best way to get Trump off the public stage, if you happen to believe that that's a good thing? You know what? It's always going to be up to the voters. But, you know, the media play a big role. Okay, politically, says Vondrelli, Trump is a dead man walking. He has lost the ability to drive the news cycle. His outlandish social media posts fall as silently as unheard forest trees. His declaration of his next campaign produced a yawn worthy of another run by Ralph Nader. As drum major of a wackadoodle parade, he marched through the Republican primaries last year, delivering candidates who bombed in the general election. Now, no one marches to his tune. When he tried to influence the election of a House Speaker, even the surviving zealots ignored his instructions. And they actually ended up saying this, even though, you know, on my show, I talked to Marjorie Taylor Greene and she had the phone with DT on it. And one of the members there angrily would not take a call from Donald Trump. And some of those people just said, look, it wasn't that they were trashing Trump. They were just saying he was irrelevant. You know, we, we, had, 
we decided to cave in because we were out of options. McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy was going to be the next speaker. Now, let's look at the flip side. To be indicted and hauled into court for history's most heavily publicized trial would invigorate Trump, and the spectacle would galvanize his dwindling base of support. He'd go from grumbling irrelevance in the gilded prison of his Mar-a-Lago mausoleum to ringmaster of a circus that would dominate every news outlet. And can you really argue with that? I mean, you can argue with what's the right ethical, legal, political, moral call here, but it would put him back in center stage. Now, again, I, I think people are forgetting that he still has a, you know, stronghold on that base. And now we'll look back one day and say, yeah, you know, uh, he got too obsessed with his own personal grievances, and that's why he was beaten in the primaries by so-and-so. But it's also possible that he will be the 2024 Republican nominee. Um, we have to allow for that possibility. But, you know, it, it reminded me of how upset I was waking up on a Sunday morning many, many years ago to find out that President Ford had pardoned Richard Nixon because Richard Nixon was clearly guilty of a long list of Watergate crimes. And that had dominated the country and torn the country apart for two years until he resigned. Years later, I and a lot of other people revised our opinion. You know, what would that trial have done if he hadn't been pardoned to the country? Wasn't it better just to get Nixon out of the way, to, to move on? Long national nightmare is over, as Jerry Ford put it. So, you know, these are not easy calls. Number three, speaking of the governor of Florida... Uh, Jonathan Martin has a column in Politico in which he recounts this anecdote. It's pretty thin gruel, as he acknowledges. Ron DeSantis and his wife, Casey, at a recent uh, event for donors in Florida, they went table to table, saying hi and thanking the people who were giving him a bunch of money. Now, that would hardly be noteworthy for most Pauls, but the early rap on DeSantis, from his fellow Republicans at least, is that for all his smarts and shrewdness, he lacks charm. They want to send him to charm school and is either unwilling or unable to submit to the longstanding rituals of retail politics. So the mere fact that he did a little table hopping is like, wow, well, maybe uh, he gets it. Maybe he's trying to work on it. Uh, the governor has absorbed the critique about his aloofness and is making an effort. This is in the opinion of Politico. Um... It shows how little of it he's done to date. The bar is pretty low for him to clear. Uh, when DeSantis held, and then you go through the history, DeSantis held a uh, retreat for his own contributors uh, in Miami last month, but his FaceTime wasn't much. You know, I mean, there's a reason you spend a lot of money to go to these things, is you want to feel like you have access to the person you're writing checks to or their political action committee. In November, Republican Jewish Coalition Conference in Las Vegas. DeSantis flew in to speak and left, turning down offers of a meet and greet. You know, most politicians, they thrive on this stuff. I mean, they, all, they not only do it as part of the job, I mean, they genuinely like working the rope line and shaking hands. They draw energy from it. I know Joe Biden likes it. Bill Clinton loved it. Uh, I think George W. Bush loved it. Ron DeSantis is just different. It's not m m making a moral judgment here. Oh, uh, in Palm Beach, there was a fireside chat that he did for Republican Governors Association. 
during which DeSantis all but delivered his stump speech. Uh, and didn't take many questions, I guess. Okay, so bottom line on this piece. For all the praise he received for his inauguration eve meet and greet, grumbles returned the next day at a black tie ball where an array of contributors were turned away from a not especially long VIP photo line. You know how, you know how the people want those photos? You know, when I would go to the White House Christmas parties, I can have a picture of yourself with President so-and-so. I've got presidents of both parties. Um, and, you know, your, your mom thinks you're important and all that. So, the final question raised by this column. How much does retail politics still matter in presidential campaigns? You know, I can remember a time when, and it also depends on the calendar, because you had, you know, Jimmy Carter won the nomination in 1976 because he camped out in Iowa for a year, meeting people. A lot of people, John McCain won the nomination in 2000 because of what he did in New Hampshire. And that propelled him. When you have those small states at the beginning, that's probably going to change, at least on the Democratic side this year. But beyond that, you know, in an age when you can craft, you can carefully craft videos and build an Instagram persona and build a YouTube persona, and as I've talked uh, some time ago on the podcast, avoid the press or limit your interactions to friendly media, and on and on and on, how much does retail politics still matter? Do, you know, the, the test used to be, is this somebody you'd want in your home? Could you see having a beer with this guy? I remember this debate about Michael Dukakis. Uh, you know, they all try to come off as statesmen and tough but, you know, the kind of person you could relate to um, if you were to meet in real life. So, you know, the act of being in a presidential campaign is itself a kind of a revealing character test. I mean, you got to deal with setbacks. One minute you're considered a lock and the next minute you're down 10 points and the inevitable accusations and scandals and stuff involving your family. I mean, it's, it's a grueling thing to put yourself through. And it comes down to, you know, do you like the act of retail politics? How much does that even matter anymore? Barack Obama was kind of aloof. He, he, I, remember, I remember him sitting in a diner having breakfast that might have been in New Hampshire, might have been in South Carolina, and the press came over and he said, can I just like eat my waffle? Like, you know, and understandably, like he wanted some alone time. But I think Barack Obama liked talking to average people on a rope line. What he did not like doing was spending a lot of time with other politicians. Unfortunately, that's part of the job description when you're POTUS. Remember that joke from one of the uh, White House correspondents? Dinners? Why don't you go get a drink with Mitch McConnell? And I think it hurt the Obama presidency that he wasn't willing to schmooze with people, and maybe that would, maybe the Republicans were going to fight him regardless. Um, but every president has his own style. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four brings me back to Jeremy Clarkson and Harry and Meghan. Jeremy Clarkson not particularly well-known on this side of the pond, is one of the most famous British journalists and entertainers. He has been on or hosted Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, the British version. He had a show about cars at one point. Um, he writes a column. He just is a household name. And 
It's been more than a month now since he wrote one of the worst columns of all time since Gutenberg invented the printing press. This was published by The Sun, and I think The Sun bears responsibilities. Anybody look at these things? Was there no editor who could say, no, you can't and shouldn't say this? So just to remind you, he was going off on how much he hates Harry, how much he hates Meghan in particular, Meghan Markle. Um, and he also was, uh, was on a show called Top Gear. I mean, this guy it would be the equivalent for us of uh, maybe a Barbara Walters. Anyway, this is what he said. At night, I'm unable to sleep as I lie there, grinding my teeth and dreaming of the day when she is made to parade naked through the streets of Britain while the crowds chant shame and throw lumps of excrement at her. Now, this caused a huge furor. But Jeremy Clarkson tried to sort of brush it off with a non-apology. And this is why we're going to get to his second apology in a minute, why I think it's not terribly sincere. Because how much, even if you're not a particularly introspective person, how much soul-searching do you have to do to realize you've stepped in it, speaking of excrement? Jeez. So his original last month, it was like, literally, he said, oh, dear, I'd rather put my foot in it, he said on Twitter. Uh, It was a clumsy reference to a scene in Game of Thrones, but he didn't mention Game of Thrones. So what? Oh, dear. Had I really said that? So it looked like all right, so let me get to the, what he says now. And you can decide whether there's any sincerity to this at all. He now says he is profoundly sorry for the column. Remember, this is weeks. I really am sorry, all the way from the balls of my feet to the follicles on my head. This is me putting my hands up. It's a mea culpa with bells on. And... He now says, um, I was mortified, and so was everyone else. My phone went mad. Very close friends were furious. Even my own daughter took to Instagram to denounce me. Yeah, you know, when you've lost a daughter, you're probably in deep S. Two of his employers, ITV, British Network, and Amazon Prime Video, were incandescent, he said. So now we're getting to why he's doing this, because it's hurting him with his uh, corporate media gigs. I therefore wrote to everyone who works with me, saying how sorry I was. And then on Christmas morning, I emailed Harry and Meghan in California. Can you just do that? To apologize to them too. I said I was baffled by what they've been saying on TV, but that the language I'd used in my column was disgraceful. And that I was profoundly sorry. I don't know. You know, I'm a big believer in second chances. I'm a big believer in, you know, if you apologize for something and it's sincere, I'm not quite moved by this. It took weeks. It took uh, until it's a backlash that's hitting him potentially in his pocketbook. Why would it take more than a day? Two days at the most to do a real apology when he actually tried to get away with a non-apology. And you you just look at that. It's so sexist, misogynist, violent. It's revolting. I guess he's now with the program. I guess his career survives, but uh, let's just say uh, I'm not uh, terribly sympathetic to this belated attempt at forgiveness. And number five, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid, obviously, to the death of Lisa Marie Presley. And 
I didn't know that much about her. I looked into it and saw a lot of clips and realized that being Elvis's only child was both a blessing and a curse because she was instantly famous, but, and she's talked about this in interviews with Oprah and with Diane Sawyer, the shadow of her father's legacy always hung over her. She was nine when Elvis died in 1977. So she never got to know him all that well, but she started a music career. She made some pretty good music and was well-reviewed. She had her own battles with the tabloids. And um, she talked quite openly about Elvis. And also, she just lived a tabloid life. I mean, four marriages, one of which was to Michael Jackson, which was his own soap opera, and then there was an investigation of the child abuse allegations and all that. One of which was to Nicolas Cage, and two others were to two people you've never heard of. So... The fact that she died at the age of 54 from cardiac arrest, I just think is really, really sad. Um, and I think that she handled it all as best she could. Well, now comes a story in Radar saying, sadly, that she owed a huge amount of money. And here's the thing. Lisa Marie Presley inherited a $100 million estate from Elvis. When he died, he left it to her. That would seem to be enough money to establish yourself and be able to get through life. But according to, I don't know, I guess a lot of this is tied up in court. Um, there's a divorce battle going on with her last ex-husband, Michael Lockwood. They've been battling over child support. So they reached a settlement where Lisa Marie agreed to pay uh, her ex $6,000 a month for their 14-year-old twins. Lisa Marie and Michael were married in 2006, but in 2016. So it was a 10-year marriage with two now teenagers. She avoided paying child support for years due to her finances being a mess. At one point, she owed millions of dollars in taxes. In 2004, according to this piece, she sold off 85% of her interest in Elvis' estate. Years later, she was heavily in debt. But last year, Michael went back to court and said, she, suddenly she's doing really well. He claimed, and of course it's in his interest to pump it up, uh, that she received a $1 million advance for a tell-all book and was getting uh, money from the release of the film Elvis, which she had actually just showed up for the Golden Globes Awards just a couple of days before she tragically died. Um, he also said that there's an, a, a special trust fund for $60 million. You know, it's, it's typical back-and-forth stuff between ex-spouses in court. It's just sad, you know, because usually when somebody dies, you say, rest in peace. And now, of course, come these legal battles, and it's not exactly RIP. But I still think that, from what I've seen, you know, she had a hard life, but she embraced. She once recorded a duet with a, for a song that Elvis had already recorded so they would be singing, heard singing together. That, I think, was an embracing of the legacy of being Elvis's only child. And with that, if you're not already subscribed to this thing, why not? Uh, Apple iTunes is a good place to do it. So is Amazon Music. Appreciate your being along for the ride. And we'll see you tomorrow with more Buzzmeter. 
Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.